It's week two of New Reads November 2022, and today, my guest and I turn our attention to R. Eric Thomas's Kings of Beemore. In this YA novel, best friends Harrison and Linus do their best to contend with their impending separation, since Linus is moving away from Baltimore with his dad. After a night of forced family fun in the form of a movie night, Harrison decides to model his goodbye to Linus with a special day inspired by Ferris Bueller's Day Off. He hopes that planning what he calls a Ferris Day for his bestie will guarantee that they remain besties forever. Naturally, the guys hit their share of road bumps, leaving them questioning the future of their relationship. Kings of Beemore opens up space for discussions about books as empathy engines, the role of the COVID-19 pandemic in creative content, especially for teens, the heartbreak of moving away for everyone involved, the importance of communication, toxic traits, the outsized nature of teen emotions, popularity, othering, and the ways in which our understanding of queer love stories is evolving with time. We touch briefly on sexual assault and racist microaggressions, so please bear that in mind as you jump into this episode. Today, I'm thrilled to welcome author Tracy Livesey to SSR. Tracy's latest release, American Royalty, is a dangerously sexy rom-com that evokes the real-life romance between Prince Harry and Duchess Meghan Markle, and is one of the most buzzed-about books of 2022. She's the 2021 Emma Award winner for Best Interracial Romance for Like Lovers Do, which was also named one of the 100 Best Fiction Books of 2020 by Kirkus Reviews. In addition to being named to USA Today's list of 100 Black novelists you should read, Tracy has been featured in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Chicago Tribune, Entertainment Weekly, and on CBS This Morning. A former criminal defense attorney, she lives in Virginia with her husband, who she met on the very first day of law school, and their three children. Follow Tracy on Facebook at Tracy Livesey Author, on Twitter at T Livesey, and on Instagram at tracy.livesey. If you haven't already, make sure you are following along with all things SSR on social media too. We are at SSRpod on Instagram and Twitter, and on Facebook when you search the SSR podcast or the SSR book club. There are always so many fun things happening with the podcast and the community that surrounds it, and that's the best way to keep up with them so you can stay involved. If you enjoy the podcast, I would also love it if you would consider posting a screenshot of this episode to your social media platform of choice. If you tag me at SSRpod, I'm happy to share it. I also love sharing five-star reviews, so go ahead and jot down your thoughts about SSR on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and look for a shout-out on Instagram soon. Patreon is another great place to interact with the SSR family. I won't bore you with the details of all of the benefits of becoming a patron, Because if you've listened to the podcast before, you know what they are. But trust me when I tell you that it is well worth the few dollars a month that you'll spend. Plus, as an independent podcaster, I rely on contributions from fans to keep the show growing. So I am incredibly thankful for all of our patrons. Get more details and sign up at www.patreon.com slash SSRpodcast or by going to www.ssrpodcast.com and clicking support at the top of the page. As the holidays approach, I have some gift suggestions for all of the book lovers in your life. For audiobook fans, consider a gift subscription to Libro FM, which allows you to support indie booksellers instead of giant corporations. Go to libro.fm and use code SSRpodcast at checkout. 
If you or your loved ones prefer physical books and still want to send a little love to indies instead of Amazon, do your shopping on bookshop.org. Use code SSRPOD to support the show at no extra cost to you. Thank you for the support. Now let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Allie Hoff-Kosick, freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Tracy. Welcome to SSR. Hi, Allie. I'm great. I'm happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, you are great. You're happy to be here and you are great. I'm great. This is going to be fun. Yes, it is. It's all good. So we are talking for week two of New Reads November about Kings of Beemore by R. Eric Thomas. And this is a book that was requested by a handful of listeners when I put out a request for suggestions for New Reads November. So I know that there are plenty of you out there tuning in who wanted to hear a discussion about this book. Tracy, I'm going to throw it to you to talk a little bit about why this was your pick. So you gave me four really good options and I looked at all of them and there were a couple that was really close. But the reason I picked this is because I am from Baltimore. I was born and lived there for the first 11 years of my life. And so when I read what this was about and obviously, you know, I know be more, I was like, I I have to, like, I just, there's no other choice. So that's that's why I picked it. So for the record, I didn't know about that. This is news to me. <laughs> well, it, I mean, I think it was meant it was meant to be. Yeah, I'm really happy I picked this book for lots of reasons. And so, yeah, it, it worked out the way it was supposed to. I agree. I love when I accidentally suggest a book to a guest that ends up being perfect for them in a way that I couldn't have expected. So great, you were born and raised in Baltimore. I know very little about Baltimore, so I will need your help because Baltimore is sort of a character unto itself in this book. It is. A couple of quick little sort of setup points about this book. It was published in May of 2022, written again by R. Eric Thomas. This is his YA debut, although his memoir, Here For It, was very well reviewed when it came out a couple of years ago. His editor pursued him and said, I think you have a YA novel in you. So it wasn't something that he came up with. His editor encouraged him to do it. And he wrote the book primarily in the height of the pandemic. Um, I found some interviews with him that I will share in the show notes for this episode. And I'm sure that, that, that those interviews will come up over the course of this conversation as well. But yeah, this book has really been getting a lot of love over the last couple of months. And I'm glad that I finally had an excuse to read it. And I sort of want to, to start our conversation with a quote that I found from our Eric Thomas, it was in an interview that he did with We Need Diverse Books. And I think it serves as a really nice jumping off point for what we might decide to talk about today. So our Eric Thomas said, 
Books are empathy engines, and anybody who is a person of color or LGBTQ or has more expansive gender identity than binary, we are used to using empathy to see ourselves between the lines. I appreciated getting to hang out in a world where change was possible and a young person was empowered to solve the metaphorical problem of the country and systems of oppression. Now, this was his answer to a question about the books that he most connected with when he was a kid. And I think he actually pointed out the Westing game as the first book where he really felt like he recognized somebody who reminded him of himself. But I was drawn to it because whenever we talk about a book that centers characters of color, queer characters, I always think it's so important for me to acknowledge, and listeners are used to this by now, I am a white woman. I am a cis woman. I am not from Baltimore. Like there are so many parts about this book that aren't about me. And that's like the great part about it because I've spent my life reading stories and watching movies that are about me. So like, let's get that out of the way that this is not about me. And at the same time, when I read a quote like that one, I'm reminded that like, just because the characters in this book don't look like me or don't have the same experiences that I do, like I can recognize a lot of myself in the way that they're navigating the world as teenagers. And so I always want to share those kind of disclaimers at the beginning of a conversation, because I'm certainly not here to pretend that Kings of Beemore speaks to like the way that I grew up, but I'm going to do my best to, as our Eric Thomas so beautifully put it, like use this story as a vehicle for empathy and bring like what I can to the conversation. I think that's a great quote. And it's something that I think about a lot as a romance author, as a romance author of color, and a romance author of color who writes characters of color. The idea that because the people we are reading or watching doesn't look like us, that it's hard for us to relate to that material and then decide that maybe we don't want to watch that material is, is, a, is a problem that we are dealing with a lot now uh, in culture and with our entertainment. And it's funny to me because, you know, obviously I grew up watching TV and reading books and no one, you know, very few people looked like me. And yet I was able to learn so much from the things I read and watched. I was able to participate in culture. Um, I was able to learn lessons. I was able to, to see parts of myself, even if they didn't superficially look like me. People emotionally looked like me. They had upbringings that were similar to mine. And so the idea of using books or movies or TV um, as empathy vehicles, I think is one of the great things about having books or TV and, and movies. And, and we haven't like said that explicitly, but I, I think that's right. I mean, whenever I read a book that's by an author who's writing about a culture that I am not familiar with, I come away from that book having learned something about that culture, which enriches me, but also because I was in their shoes, I realized we're not as different as people might think surface-wise, that we still feel the same things. We still react in similar ways. Uh, so I think that's an, an amazing quote, and uh, I agree wholeheartedly. It's an important balance, I think, between not pretending that you can understand everything about somebody's experience and being blind to your differences, and also 
being able to like celebrate the differences while recognizing some of the sort of core themes about humanity that we all share regardless of where we come from. So I'm going to continue to walk that balance in the podcast as a whole, of course, and in our conversation today. At the beginning of Kings of More, we meet our two main characters, Linus and Harrison, and they have kind of an interesting friendship origin story. They met when they were much younger at church, and then they grew apart a little bit. And this book is really driven quite centrally by the pandemic because Linus and Harrison reconnected in a Zoom room when they were doing some online program during lockdown. I've been thinking a lot lately, both as like a consumer of content and as a creator of content about how the legacy, if you will, of COVID-19 is going to exist in our culture and in the things that we make and consume in the years to come. And I'm curious how you have been thinking through that, again, as both a consumer and a creator, because I posted this on my Instagram story a couple of weeks ago. Like, I think it was about a month ago when I read like the word COVID-19 in a piece of fiction for the first time. And I was like, oh, like there it is, we're we're doing it. And I got my MFA this past spring. And so I started the program right in the height of lockdown. And so from day one, we were having these conversations about like, when are we gonna start writing the pandemic experience into our stories. Are we going to? How is that all going to work? And I think Kings of Beemore was the first book that I've read or even story that I've consumed that really like had traces of the COVID experience like in every element of it. And so I'm wondering like how you took that in and if it's something you've been thinking about too. Right. It it was it was a shock. Yeah. I, I admit reading it and having it be in the fiction and as you said, sort of play play a role in sort of what happened in their relationship going forward in the book. And it was really interesting to me because I remember in the early days of the pandemic, there were discussions specifically in the romance genre where some people had started to write stories that were pandemic love stories, whether it was, you know, people who maybe uh like lived maybe next door to each other had never met or whatever because they worked all the time but now suddenly they're forced in love stories like that or stories where people were kind of forced into a cohabitation because of the pandemic and there i remember the conversation being like is this too soon should people be doing this considering what's going on in the world and we don't know about it and i think i fell on the side of I wouldn't say it was too soon, but it wasn't something that I was interested in doing. And as the time went on and we got later into 2020, into 2021, questions about are we going to put into our stories that people were isolated? Are we going to have people wear masks? Like all of those things came up. Again, I think I fell on the side of I'm not going to have that in the world that I am creating. So it was it was stark to see a book that said, no, we're going to put this in here. And it was surprising, but I think it works because I do believe, um, I have three teenagers, I do believe that the pandemic impacted them in a way that it did not impact me. And it will affect them in a way that it has not affected me. And to see that play out 
in a book from their perspective made a lot of sense. And it'll probably probably be something I think we'll see more and more often, especially I think the genre is perfect for it for that very reason, because for a lot of children, you know, like this might be a defining thing for them for a very long time. Whereas for me, there are other things, but it, it was not the best situation, but it, you know, there were other things that I would say would define what, you know, what, what happened in my life. But for kids that age and younger, it was major. And so to see it be a part of maybe not only the plot, but personal development, character development, mental health issues. Yeah, I would expect to see it a lot going forward. I really appreciate you saying that because I don't think I thought about it that way in the YA space specifically, but it does make sense. Like, I think this generation of teenagers is inevitably going to be defined by the fact that they lived through all of this at a very critical time. And you're reminding me of the fact that this past summer I taught a writing class um, and it was like a pre-college program. So it was actually all students that were Linus and Harrison's age. They were Mm -hmm. rising juniors for the most part. And it was fascinating to hear them talk about their experience in the pandemic. And I wouldn't, of course, say that like I had forgotten about the pandemic in the summer of 2022 because it's impossible to do that. But I think for me as an adult, like it has become a normal set of precautions that I have to take, a normal set of concerns that I have to live with. But when you're a teenager, like every day, every week, every month, you're changing and you feel different. So your response to all of this inherently changes too. And it made me realize, like, when I was talking to those kids who are rising juniors, like, they were in middle school when this started. And and that is so, there's so much change that happens. And that's what we see in this book. And I think what the author did, among other things that was so smart, was that he seems to have said it, like, a couple of years in the future. I'm not quite sure how many years. But Linus and Harrison are talking about the pandemic as though they kind of forged this friendship online a couple of years ago. Like, they've been friends for a few years now. And so it will be interesting to see how many other YA authors take that strategy of like, let's kind of show teen readers what it might look like for them a few years down the road so that they can find comfort in the fact that like this too shall pass. Because Linus and Harrison, you know, the plus was that they came together in a Zoom room and became friends. But we also see over the course of the story, all these other things that were very difficult for their families about the pandemic, especially Linus's family. Like his parents' marriage really fell apart around the pandemic. There were a lot of financial challenges that came out of that time. And I like the fact that the author thought about, well, let's see if we can show readers what this might look like a few years from now so that they can reflect on it in a different way. Yes, I mean, that's a, it's a really good point to talk about, sort of pointing something out I hadn't thought about, is I'm reading it in 2022, and it feels like 2022, but it, Eric didn't write it in 2022. He wrote yeah. it, yeah, he wrote it a couple years ago, and so he was thinking forward very smartly, because it does read so current, even though he wrote it during a time when, you know, who knows if the things that they were doing 
in this book would even be possible if people would be able to do it. That's a very good point. Yeah, and he, he got a lot right, not knowing exactly <laughs> what was going to happen. So um, way to go, way to go. <laughs> so the big news at the beginning of the book is that Linus is moving. Yes. And that, again, like sort of identifying threads of their experience that that I can relate to, like that's something that we've all been through on one side or another. Like we all as kids or as teenagers either had a best friend move away or were the best friend that moved away. And I felt for both of them because when I was younger, I was on both sides of that equation and both of them equally suck in different ways. And just like, even the fact that like Linus had known, I think for a couple of months that he was moving and he didn't want to tell Harrison until like days before. It just was heartbreaking. It, it really was. It's funny because it, it took me back. You know, it took me back because I was the one that moved away. I was, you know, I was 11 versus their uh, 16 when I moved. But I remember, I remember the feeling that Linus has, that feeling of not being in control, that feeling of decisions being made for you and you not having a say. I remember that distinctly. And the other interesting part of that is that recently I made that decision, uh, my husband and I, for our family. Mm. Now we didn't move. The, the way that, um, so, that, so Linus is moving from Baltimore to South Carolina. We moved from Baltimore to Virginia. And while Virginia is closer, it felt that same way. Like you were moved, where are you moving? what is even there yeah. like do you even it's not it, it's not even the same world my husband and i we moved our family we just moved a county <laughs> north we did not move as far and and we'll probably talk about this uh a little bit later but i remember being so angry when i was the child who had moved and as the adult making that decision i remember sympathizing with my children about having to move from their friends but not enough that i acted that i would act in a way that i wished my parents would so in other words i did not consult my children i did not ask their opinion we made the decision and we moved and in some ways i thought this might hurt now but it's in their best interest and they will get over it and and I, I clearly remember thinking that and so as i'm reading that and i'm reading linus's feelings about it and how deeply he felt it was interesting because it took me back to that kid and it was just so stark as i thought about that versus the fact that you know i essentially did what his you know parents did did what my parents did and in some ways minimized that feeling for my kids because I was looking at the bigger picture. I was looking at the greater picture. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. I mean, I had so much empathy for Linus's dad in this book because we don't know all the details of the move, but we kind of understand that a lot of what's going on is financial and that it no longer makes sense for him to live in Baltimore. He's been driving with a rideshare full-time and we get the sense that maybe there's family that he can lean on a bit in South Carolina, and so they'll have more support. 
Linus for a period was living with his mom after the divorce and that didn't work out. His mom works in a nursing home and we find out later in the book and I had like a light bulb moment when I was like, all right, the pandemic, because she explains that there was all of this stress put on their relationship because she was so worried about bringing COVID in and out of the house because of her job. And I'm like, oh, right. Like these are the things that are going to need to be written into stories going forward. Like I hadn't even thought about that as somebody who has lived through this. But I felt for his dad because I was like, he he is in this position to make a huge decision for his child. And then toward the end of the book, they have this conversation where Linus's dad has a very frank conversation with him about like wants versus needs. And he's like, what do you want? And Linus, of course, has all of these things that he wants. He doesn't want his life to be uprooted. And his dad's like, no, no, I know. But like, but but what do you need? Because I don't know that I can give you everything that you want. And I'm 32. I don't have any kids at this point. But like, sometimes I do try to project myself into the future. And I'm like, what would I do if there came a time when I had to move my kids and had to put them through an experience that was really hard for me when I was a teenager? And it's like, you want to be the parent that's like, what do you want? I want to give you what you want. But at the end of the day, like you kind of have to pull the lioness's dad and be like, I hear what you want, but actually I'm not that cool and I'm going to have to settle for what you need. Right. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I totally agree. Um, and I think an- another thing that the book did well and, and sort of that whole scene ep- epitomizes is how important communication is mm-hmm. and a lot of all around actually. So I think a lot of Linus's feelings about a lot of different things may have been helped, possibly alleviated, if there had been conversations before. And of course, I understand it's a story, it's fiction, right. you know, you have an arc, I get it. But I do think if if they had had these conversations before, it may have helped Linus a lot. Because as I'm reading the book and I know that Linus doesn't want to leave and I'm sitting here thinking of the different, you know, things that could be done. How could this be solved? Could he stay with Harrison's family? Why can't he live with his mom? Like all of these things for those two to be able to stay together. But, you know, in the end, as his parent, you know, he has to make choices and decisions that look at the bigger picture that aren't just the things that Linus wants in this moment, but what's best for Linus, even if he can't see it now. I, when I look back and I know how upset I was at that move, I can now look back and say 100%, I would not be where I am today if that hadn't happened. That's for a lot of things, but I do believe they made the right choice. I am not, I'm no longer angry at the choice that was made. And I hope even if my husband and I could have done better in our communication uh, with the kids. It would not have changed our decision per se, but maybe if they felt heard, maybe if they had that feeling, it may have helped some of their anxiety about the move. But I hope that they one day look back and say it was a little uh, troubling for us at the time. It was a little and you know made me anxious it was anxiety producing at the time but i understand and see that you were doing what was best for us and i appreciate that something all parents want to hear uh, <laughs> at some point but yeah i, I do think and that communication 
issue that he has with his parents is also reflected in his relationship with Harrison because yeah. he's found it very difficult to communicate with Harrison. They're very different in some ways and they have a very specific kind of friendship, which I loved. And we talk about this on the podcast sometimes. There's like, when you're a kid, there's this massive distinction between like school friends and home friends. Um, And, you know, I even used to make jokes about like the people in my grad school program where I was like, oh no, we're, we're home friends and that we would text. But for some reason we like never talked in person as 30 year old human beings in class. But then as soon as I left class, we would be texting and I'd be like, no, like we're not school friends. Like we can't let go of these habits even as adults. And Linus and Harrison are very much home friends. They go to different schools. They really live in different worlds. Harrison goes to what I perceive to be a very fancy private school. And Linus goes to public school. And so there's not a lot of overlap in the way that they spend their days. But they've spent the summer working together. And then they love to hang out at a cemetery. And they like to sort of like people watch, but with the gravestones. And like imagine what all of the lives must have been like. So Harrison is understandably like really upset when he finds out that Linus is moving and he takes inspiration for like, I don't know, his next move, like how he's going to deal with all of this from one of my personal favorite movies. It's a movie that I grew up with. It's one of my dad's favorites. We used to watch it all the time. I know that there are things about it that most certainly do not hold up. But when I discovered that Ferris Bueller's Day Off plays a central role in this book, more central perhaps than the pandemic, I was pretty psyched because I was like, this is what I need. Like I need an entire book based on one of my favorite John Hughes movies. And that's exactly what's happening. Harrison watches Ferris Bueller's Day Off with his parents at one of their like family movie nights. And he's like, oh, this movie, it's so lame. Like, why do my parents make me watch old movies? And then he's like, we need a Ferris day. Like this is how Linus and I are going to spend his last day before he moves. And it's going to be perfect. And in that moment, I was like, okay, if we're choosing between am I a Harrison or am I a Linus, I am fully a Harrison because I I would put so much pressure on myself. Like I, I felt for him so deeply because Harrison basically decides that it's like on him to nail this day and to make it perfect. And he's such a people pleaser, which is something that I'm working on. And he's like, I, I can't have Linus leave Baltimore without having a perfect day with me, Harrison, his best friend. Right, and it wasn't just, and this is the thing, it wasn't just that they would have this one day together so that they could have just a memory of like, you know, like you're like, oh, he's moving, let's have one last day together. It went deeper than that, which goes back to the whole thing about the pandemic because they were friends when they were younger. When um, Linus's parents uh, divorced, they sort of, left, I guess, the church, which is where they sort of had most of their interaction. And they lost touch for a long time. And it was because of the pandemic and this Zoom thing where they met back up. And then because they lived such different lives during the day, their friendship was based on sort of their their emails and, and, and text and phone calls, but also this thing they did when they got together on weekends. And then Harrison, again, takes it upon himself when summer is coming to have them work together so they could spend all of their time together during the summer. And so Linus moving frightens Harrison because he thinks because they lost touch the last time 
circumstances dictate a, a, a separation between them. He feels like he has to impact or imprint on Linus their best friend status before mm -hmm. Linus goes. So it's, and you know, so the pressure on him is not just we have to have this perfect day. It's like we have to have this perfect day so Linus will remember that I'm his best friend and I won't lose him. And that, I mean, I'm, I'm a total, total Harrison. I'm a total Harrison. And I just, I felt for him and I felt him and his desire to, to try to maintain this relationship. Like it was super, and he was taking it all um, on himself. And, you know, yes, Linus is going, was going through his whole thing and he's moving or whatever. But I, I mean, I have to say, I, I, I really felt Harrison in this book. Linus didn't always make it easy on Harrison and what he was trying to do. Yeah, he definitely did not. And, you know, people talk about their toxic traits. I think like my toxic trait, if we're going to make a meme about it, is probably <laughs> that I can be a little bit of a Harrison in that I take it all upon myself, which at face value is a very generous thing to do. Like Harrison has put all of this time and energy into planning the perfect day. But there is also like quite a bit of ego in it because it becomes about you. And we see that in this book because over the course of the Ferris day, they run into several of Linus's friends from school. And the day itself gets off to a rocky start, which we might talk about more as we go on. But it doesn't really kind of settle into itself until after they run into these other friends. And Harrison's kind of protective about that because he's like, I planned this day. I wanted it to be great. And I, I ultimately like wanted to be the one to make it great. And I actually like, I was reading this book um, right before and right after one of my younger sister's bachelorette parties, which I planned. And it, it was so funny because like, I was like the engineer behind the party, but of course I needed help. This was like a whole weekend. I didn't really know any of the the women that were invited. And I was like, I am a Harrison because my sister is so happy. And she's like thanking the individual people for the individual things that they did. And I'm like, well, hey, I was the one who planned this whole weekend. But it's like, that's not really the point because the goal should always have been to just make her happy. And so my toxic trait is the same as whatever Harrison's toxic trait is, which is there's like a very fine line between making it about you and making it about someone else. Yes. And Har Harrison did have a problem. I have a hard time understanding that because it, it did. It, it felt he thought about it enough that he wanted to do things that he thought that Linus would like. But the flip side of that was, but we're still going to do these things. Yes. Right. So, uh, <laughs> you know, if Linus, and he did, but, you know, it didn't stop the book. If Linus like, I actually don't feel like going out. <laughs> I actually would like to stay here and spend time with you. That, no, no. Harris is like, mm, no, because I've planned these things. Right. And you, we are going to do them. And we're going to have fun. And we're going to be bonded forever, whether you want it or not. Even though it was supposed to be for him. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Harrison's funny. And let the record show that I, like Harrison, did ultimately figure out, and it didn't take me quite as long as it took Harrison, but I, I figured out how to simmer down those feelings pretty quickly and everybody had a good time over the weekend. I want to get another conversation kind of out of the way because I, I think it, it sort of 
put a spotlight on one of my own like limitations as a reader and quite frankly one of my own limitations as a non-queer person and it's something that I read quite a bit about while I was reading interviews with the author and that sort of thing so at the beginning of the book I'm not gonna lie I thought maybe Harrison had a crush on Linus because there was a line even where I think Harrison is like is it normal to find your friend this beautiful like there were a couple of moments where it seemed fairly explicit that he was admiring Linus and Maybe it's because I'm an adult, I don't know, but even like as the book progressed and some other crushes were introduced, I was having a hard time like understanding the stakes of the story because I was like, I I get that you guys are best friends, but it's also 2022 and you're teens, like you can chat on TikTok or on Instagram, like it's gonna be okay. And so I think, again, whether I'm limited by my adultness or by my straightness, like I don't know, but I was like, is there's there's got to be something else here like why is everybody so upset and maybe I also just didn't want them to be upset because I cared about these characters so much and then when I found out at the end of the book that no it's really about this platonic beautiful love I was feeling a little bit out of sorts with myself about it because I was like come on Allie it's 2022 like you are in this business of trying to have these conversations about how we can diversify the stories we're telling and I wonder if it's just a function of the fact that we are finally, and it's been way too long, but we are finally starting to see queer love stories out there in the mainstream. And we're not necessarily always used to those dynamics, or I'm not as somebody who's not queer. And I found a couple of quotes from the author in an interview. I think it's again, that same interview with We Need Diverse Books, but he also speaks about it in an interview with The Advocate. But he said, We are dangerously close in depictions of young gay relationships to a place where you can't see two young men or young women who are adorable and think, oh, this is all their relationship is going to be. I don't think that friendship is a JV version of a relationship. Friendship can be the be all and end all. It can be the most fulfilling part. And so I think it's been really important to highlight that. So by the time I got to the end of the book, I was like, oh, it is this, like they are family. It is this love that they are going to miss. And I had to, I had to sort of like check myself on that. Yeah. I don't I, I don't think you should be too hard on yourself actually. I I am a, I'm a romance writer. I've said it. I'm a romance reader. It is my favorite genre. I ship. It is a thing that I do that when I go into a movie or a book, I'm I am I am attuned to it. I am I am looking for it because it is my favorite thing. And so like you because of a couple of those statements where Harrison, I was going to say Hamilton, <laughs> That's, yeah, where Harrison was describing Linus or talking about Linus, I too wondered if the discovery after their day was going to be about more than just a friendship, whether it was going to be um, mutual or not, or one-sided, I thought that there was going to be more. And I hear what Eric is saying in his quote, and I received that. But it happened a couple of other times too that makes me wonder if he did not put that in there as a way just to sort of, you know, you might think it's this, but it's not this. Yeah. Because it yeah. wasn't just that one time. I mean, Harris, there was that moment where they're at the pool and Linus is there with the guy he likes, Maz. 
think his name was, mm -hmm. and Maz is laying his head in Linus's lap, and Harrison sees it, and he feels some kind of way yeah. about it. And there were the moments where he's talking about where Harrison is is focused on trying to get Linus a kiss during this day, and it's with other people that Harrison seems uncomfortable by that prospect, but tries to act as if he's not. And so for people who read genre or watch genre, those are those are clues. Those are tips to us that maybe something else is going on here. But in the end, you're right. Like the description of the love that they had is platonic, but it's it's so deep. Like I think that's sort of where Eric was going to like it's platonic, it's these two kids and they love each other, but also, and, and, and I also was approaching this as an adult and think I probably would have felt different reading it as a kid, but as a kid with those feelings, it does feel probably all encompassing and so big. And it almost felt as if their platonic friendship, almost brother family love was deeper and more than any sort of romantic love that they would have experienced either between them or, you know, with the other people in the book. And, and I, and I think as we grow older, I, I, I would just say me, I'm not going to assume for, for all adults. I think that there's a tendency to look at the feelings of teenagers because you know there's so much more and maybe not give them the weight that teens do because to them it is like if this is a funny thing but my my son was 15 his birthday's coming up soon and you know he has the, the daily countdown of how many days it is to his birthday <laughs> and we were talking about it and he said he'd seen something that says, you know, like to a 10 year old, those days are meaningful. And because it's like, and it's time is, is long because it's one tenth of their life or something like that. But for, you know, someone who's 50, it's just another day and it's life and it's all short because it's like one fiftieth of, 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 a, of our time. And I think about that, I was thinking about that when I thought about how I would look at and his parents would just look at this and be like, this is insane. Like you said, you, you're fine. And I think they said, we'll make it, we'll be fine. You guys will be fine. We'll make sure you can continue talking to each other. But to them, you would think, you know, they were going off to war. We're never going to see each other again. And it's just sort of the, to them, because of the limited amount of years they have that, those feelings and ever is, is so intense. And we, you know, as you go older, you realize there's more. And so we tend to sort of maybe look at that and be like, it's okay. <laughs> we don't, you know, they feel it a lot more deeply than we do. I think there's also a thing that happens when you're a teenager because you have so many feelings <laughs> when you're a teenager, which I don't say to be reductive at all because I, you know, I validate all of those feelings. It's it's a big time in a lot of ways. 
And because you're having those big feelings, many of them for the first time toward other people, like I remember being a little bit confused about like, what are these feelings about? Like, what is going on here? And I had one friend in high school who I've talked about on the podcast before, and he was my very, 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 very best friend. And I miss him very much. And our relationship actually reminds me quite a bit of this relationship between Linus and Harrison, just because it is so intensely close. But because I had also never had a romantic relationship before, there were times when I was like, wait, is this it? Like, Am I, am I missing it? Like maybe, maybe he's, this is the guy. Like, I don't know. Is this my first boyfriend? I don't know. And I think we both had those moments over the course of our friendship and we never blurred the lines, but I wonder if there's some of that happening here too. And I would imagine that maybe because both Harrison and Linus are part of these very like out and proud queer communities, like maybe they feel pressure to get together as well. Like, so I do... I recognize some of my own friendship experiences in their relationship. And there's there's a paragraph toward the end of the book that is so beautiful. It reads, it was insufficient to say he loved Harrison like a friend because that made it seem less than another kind of love when really it felt huge, dazzling, extraordinary. This was the destination, wasn't it? That was the place that resisted a clean break, the center of joy, this friendship that made the whole city seem a welcome adventure. How is it possible that love could feel so many different ways? How was it possible that a friend felt like an appendage? No, even more than that. Was it too much to say that a friend, this friend, felt like a part of his heart? A chamber that he was losing. And I was like, yes, that's how it feels. Yeah, it does. It's beautiful and beautifully depicted. Um, so Kings of Beemore, I would say, is kind of episodic. And, and when I read these interviews with the author, he talks about how like that was his intention. Like he outlined it in a very specific way. And so, of course, it's all building toward this climax of what Harrison envisions will be the big moment of Ferris Day. But there's all of these like shorter episodes that happen during the day that you can almost read independent of one another. So we've already had such a rich discussion, Tracy. And so as we begin to wind down the process of talking about Kings of Beemore, I'm curious if there are one or two of those episodes or moments of the book that you like the best or that you want to unpack a little bit further. So there are a couple. Oh, there's probably more, but I'm just going to pick a couple. It's hard. There's a lot. It's hard. I said but then I was like, oh, I could go this way or that way, but I'm going to pick a couple. His sister, Corinne, her story, that arc, I was surprised by how, how it touched me mm-hmm. um, and how it went in a place that I did not expect. Uh, so we, you know, we can definitely discuss that. And then I'm going to call them Aperna Squared. Yeah. Uh, I was very, <laughs> that was very, in, in, a, in, a, in a similar way, it happened and unfurled in a way that surprised me. It didn't end the way I thought. I thought I knew what was going to happen. It didn't end there, but I was very tickled by how it ended. It, it was, it was very, it was very entertaining. That's, that's what I'll say. And I'm, so I'm happy to, to discuss either or both. Okay. So let's touch on Aparna briefly because okay. I feel like the current conversation might be a little bit deeper. So my thoughts about the Aparna squared situation, Aparna is Harrison's like theater friend, but Aparna is the stage manager. And so when he needs backup to help him plan Ferris Day, he of course 
recruits Aparna. And Aparna hilariously actually has these like stage manager reports, which I really loved just format wise. But there's this other girl named Aparna at school who our Aparna or Harrison's Aparna refers to as cool Aparna. And while Aparna, Harrison's Aparna is doing all of the behind the scenes at Ferris Day, she runs into cool Aparna. And so now we have both Aparnas working behind the scenes. And what I thought was really interesting, and I would say like very resonant with my own teenage experience, was a conversation that the two Aparnas have about like visibility and what it means to be visible at school. And it just brings you back to those days when you were in high school and like popularity seemed like the most important thing and like what makes somebody popular and what makes somebody visible and important. And our stage manager, Aparna, is like, oh, but you're cool. Like, I didn't think that you ever wanted to hang out with me because you're so visible. Like, people know you. You're front and center. I'm always literally backstage. And cool Aparna is like, what is what does that visibility thing even mean? Like, it's at school. That's not real. Longtime listeners of the podcast know this, but I am actually married to a guy who was much, much, much cooler than I was in high school. So much so that we weren't friends. You can keep you can keep this one for your future romance novels, Tracy, if you want. Um, but he he was cool. Like, and whenever I tell the story of how we met, I'm like, I knew him when I was 12, but he was much cooler than I was, and we didn't reconnect until college. And we've now been married for almost seven years. We've been together for 13, and when we talk about high school, he's like, I don't understand why you felt that way. Like, I don't know why you thought I was so cool and so popular. I thought that, you know, I would have gladly hung out with you. And so that was really resonant with me. All of these conversations that the Aparnas were having along the way about like, I think we're just misunderstanding each other. And we're like, we both have a read on what's happening at school that is completely wrong. Yeah, I really enjoyed that too. And, and sort of the, the idea that what we see and what people present isn't ex- always sort of what's really going on, I think is a, is a big high school lesson that I don't think, even though I, I, I tell my children this all the time, I don't think you, they'll get or anyone gets until they leave. But in the same way that Aparna was like, you're cool Aparna, cool Aparna was like, but I'm watching you, like I'm seeing you, you're looking at me during the play, singing the song, thinking that I'm doing a great job, but I can see you, you know, in the wardrobe. I see that little, I see you. And I find that fascinating. I just thought it was really, really interesting. And then, as I said, like the whole story point is um, Harrison has these things he wants to do. And so one of them was that they were going to drive in a, in a convertible like they do in the movie. And so when it turns out that cool Aparna's car is a convertible, I'm like, ah, like obviously <laughs> it's going to come back around. And then, I, I mean, and then the way it does or doesn't at the end, just, I laughed. I laughed um, at that. I just thought it was so funny and so perfect how, how that turned out. It, it was great. <laughs> yeah, I had to reread that paragraph a couple of times because I was like, is that really how this whole thing is going to end? I'm confused. <laughs> yeah. It was like, yeah, this is like, oh. Yeah, it was funny. But let's talk about Corinne a little bit. Um, so Corinne is Harrison's older sister and they used to be super close and then she went away to college and it seemed like something weird happened. And as readers, we don't really know what happened until almost the very end of the book. And it's sad because we see the breakdown of their relationship. But 
Corinne's story is certainly not one that I can tell or that I can speak to very well myself. So I'm going to hand it to you, Tracy. I'd love for you to share a little bit more about kind of how you took that. I took it in the way that uh, a woman, an older woman who uh, was a women's studies major probably took it. I um, assumed that she had been assaulted in college and thought that that is what had happened. And reading, as you know, you sort of, Harrison explains what their relationship was, and then you sort of see how it is. And it's really sad to see the breakdown of that relationship. But there's also something that plays into it. But you know, you have a 16 year old and a 21 year old. And the thing about kids is, as much as we love Harrison, and we've talked about it a lot in the book about sort of his taking things on, there is a, a selfishness, there's a self-centeredness to that, to kids in general, to think that everything, if something doesn't happen or doesn't work out, it's their fault. Or to also believe that they can take everything on them and, and, and make it better or, or make a change. And so Harrison seemed unable to see beyond himself to the pain that Corinne was clearly in. Um, and that was really sad. What we find out is that she wasn't sexually assaulted, as far as I got from it. What it, it seemed happened is she was a, you know, a person of color, a black woman in a space, in a very white space that wouldn't allow her to not only be herself, but be herself without being othered. And so you know, she's gone to the school and she's with people who probably haven't been around black people or uh, seen black people in person. And there was that other, they, she, she wears her hair natural and um, her brother always talked about her twist out, which for people who don't know is you take your hair, you put it in either braids or uh, two, two strands, two twist strands and you let it dry and then you take it out and it's that wonderful sort of curly pattern. So they talked about, she talked about how people in her dorm who she called her friends um, would just touch her hair, just put their hands in her hair with no reason because it's different. But it, it makes her, and I've had that happen to me, you feel like an animal, like a specimen, like you can be petted. And then when she got up the courage to be able to say, this makes me uncomfortable, her feelings are invalidated. And she's told she's being too serious, too sensitive and she needs to let it go. And sort of all of this sort of culminated in really affecting her mentally and spiritually, you know, to the point that she had people, again, who were supposed to be her friends saying, maybe college isn't for you. And she had to leave, which, I just felt really, it was really heartbreaking. It was really heartbreaking because clearly a woman who was smart and sensitive and to have to have to, have to deal that, to deal with that was, was really, was really sad. But she seemed to, Harrison's plans for the day not only helped him in Linus, but it appeared to have an effect on um, Corinne as well, because you find out that she knows about these plans in a certain way. And so she's having her own journey while they're having a journey. And it not only seems like it helps her, 
but it helps their relationship, which I thought was, was absolutely beautiful. Yeah, she's a great character. And yeah. I was happy that her story came full circle at the end. I did. Yeah. And we got to know her a little bit better. Yeah, yeah. And I, I wanted to point out one other person who made a really small appearance, but it um, stuck with me. So his friend, um, Mondale. Love Mondale. Is <laughs> Mondale is just, I just feel like very wise yeah. beyond his years. But he has this discussion. Um, he calls Mondale to try to figure out things that Linus might like to do on Ferris Day because Mondale is known as this great gift giver. And Mondale is spending the summer in Arizona and they have this conversation about the stars. And it really struck me because I remember when we moved from Baltimore to Virginia, we moved to the small town Farmville. And I, rem I distinctly remember the first time that I was in Farmville, it was nighttime, looking up at the sky and noticing the stars in a way I had never done before in Baltimore. And I remember thinking like, is that for real? Like, is this, it, I mean, it's, it's exactly as he describes, it's so beautiful. There are so many stars. It looks like you're looking at something that was not even painted, but it just doesn't seem real. Yeah. And so his description of that just, it just stuck with me. I was like, oh my God. Like that's when I knew that I was in, that this, that I was in for this whole journey and that I had picked the right book because that really, it took me back. So I just wanted to do a little shout out to Mondale. Love Mondale. Mondale <laughs> yeah. was great. Lots of great secondary yeah. characters in this book. They were. They were. Overall, Tracy, how does Kings of Be More compare with the books that you read when you were a teenager? And what do you think that says about the direction of the publishing industry more broadly? I would have loved to have read uh, Kings of Be More when I was a teenager. I, you know, read quite a bit. I've been a reader all of my life. To say that I did not see myself in the things I read would be an understatement. And so to have that representation would have been amazing. I also think in the, not only the racial diversity, but we talk about the gender diversity, the economic diversity, it's just so much. It was so rich, uh, the world that's in this book. And I, and I would have enjoyed that. And I think that's a good thing about where the industry is going, because I don't think something like something like that would not have existed when, when I was a teenager reading uh, books. It also, and I don't want to say this as a, in, in a condescending way, or but it takes the feelings of teenagers very seriously mm. and we talk mm. about that like as an adult reading it i I'm, I'm coming at it from a different place but i can imagine as a teenager all of the feelings that harrison had and linus had about life and these feelings and and all of those things that is described in such a overwhelming way would have felt that way to me as a teenager. And I and so I would have appreciated reading a story that wasn't the entire time people being like, you're feeling this way now, but you know, 
give yourself some time. Like it, 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 it took seriously their feelings. And I would have appreciated that as a, as a teenager. I definitely would have. I think that's very well said. Definitely takes these kids seriously, which I enjoyed too. Other than Kings of Beemore, what have you been reading lately that you would recommend to our listeners? Oh. I know there's always so many. <laughs> I can see you sighed. Uh. Uh, so many, but also I'm, I'm on deadline, so not as much as I normally would. And it's probably why I really enjoyed reading this because it was so different and it just took me out of my head while I was reading it. And I appreciate that. So Above the Mistletoe, it's going to be mostly romance because that's what I read. So Above the Mistletoe by Michelle Aris okay. um, is it's it's out now, I believe, but it's it's a holiday Yay. Uh, story. I really enjoyed that. On the Hustle by Adriana Herrera, that just came out. That is so funny and sexy and just tropey and delicious. So I really enjoyed that. And um, Laquette's um, Vanessa Jarrett's Got a Man was so romantic. Just it felt like it felt like reading about people I know. Uh, so those are the three that I would definitely recommend. Thank you. Well, I will include links to all of those in the show notes for this episode. And I actually came to your book from a recommendation from another guest a couple of months ago. And I read it, I think like the next week I went out and got a copy of American Royalty because I was like, this sounds so good. You have royalty, you have music superstars, you have romance, you have spice. Tracy, Ooh, so spicy, so steamy. What do you want to share with our listeners about American royalty and anything else that you might be able to tease about what's coming next? Okay. Uh, well, American royalty is my latest. Uh, and it was originally marketed as sort of uh, based upon Prince Harry and Meghan Markle. And it was loosely, you know, in the sense that, you know, he's a British prince and white, and she is an American entertainer and black. Uh, but actually, it's more, and uh, a fan said this at some point, and I've adopted it. It's sort of Harry and Meghan, if Meghan was Meghan the style. 100%. And I think that's, yes. That is it. Yes. That's the log line. That is, that is the show. I love this book, and I do. I think if you like royalty romance, if you like sort of like entertainment romance, you will love this book. If you like a little bit of spice, it's good. Um, if you like female friendships, I mean, I, I just think it's a fun contemporary romance. And I usually do write series. My series, um, I think of them as traditional romance series and that there's a different couple in each book. But American Royalty is the first book I wrote that when I got to the end, I said, their story's not over. Yay. Um, yeah, <laughs> like they, they love each other, but their lives are so big that usually when you finish one of my books, I want you to be able to believe that the characters live, actually live happily ever after. I didn't feel that way when I finished American Royalty. Not that they didn't love each other, they do, and they want to be together. But again, he's a prince, she's a rapper, their lives are quite different and they're trying to make it work in the intense glare of 
the world spotlight? How will they make that work? So the next book coming um, will come out in June of next year. It is the sequel. It's a continuation of Danny and Jameson. And I'm really excited and scared for people yeah. to read it. Oh, I'm excited. I personally am excited. I'm going to read it. Can't wait. <laughs> Listeners, get yourself a copy of American Royalty. Like, tis the season for curling up under a great blanket. And you will read this in one sitting if you want to. It's so good and so juicy. And you won't be able to look away from it. So congratulations. I really loved it. Thank you. Thank you so much. It was so nice having you on the show and I appreciate this rich conversation. So thank you for taking the time. I I was so happy to do this uh, when you reached out to me. And then after reading the book, it's just been a, a glorious experience. Thank you. Thank you. SSR is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind the scenes inside scoop, and some good old fashioned book talk. Find us at SSR pod on Instagram and Twitter and search SSR podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast.